I want you guys to imagine with me a small town in the heartland of the country. I want you to imagine a small town that's on the brink of starvation. As you look around the town, you see men, women, and children, all with gaunt faces, all with hungry bellies and and hopelessness in their eyes. It's not that they don't work. It's just that no matter what they do, they, they seem to always just be barely getting by. And slowly, they're dying off. And this has been the case for generation after generation after generation. In a neighboring town, there's an owner of a bread factory that, that knows of the need in this small town. And he also knows that his bread factory produces more than enough every day to meet the needs in that town. As it turns out, there's a food bank right in the middle of that town where the people are. So so the owner of the bread factory comes up with a great plan. He says, every day, I'm going to send my surplus bread to this town to meet the needs of these hungry citizens. And he does that day after day after day the truckloads go into that town. And as he thinks about the bread going there to meet those needs, it makes him smile inside to think about those bellies being filled and smiles coming back to the face of those people. In fact, he gets so excited that he says, hey, I'm going to hop in my car and drive into the town and see, see this in action. So he hops in his vehicle and he travels to that neighboring town and as he gets close to the food bank where he's been shipping the bread... He slows down and gets confused as he notices lines and lines of people everywhere on the street begging for food. Thin, gaunt people begging for food. He continues to drive and he pulls into the parking lot of the food bank. And he knocks on the door. No answer. He knocks on the door a second time. No answer again. He knocks on the door a third time as loud as he can, and finally an irritated voice inside says, Who is it? And he says, I'm the one who's been sending the bread. Oh! And he, the man inside opens the door, and the, the owner of the bread company notices that the man who opens the door is a rather large, slow-moving man who says, Come on back. And he brings the owner of the bread company to a back room where there are ten equally large and slow-moving people gathered around a table. They barely acknowledge the presence of the, the bread company owner. And he quickly got an idea as to what it was that so captivated them. He looked at the center of the table where he saw loaves of bread. And as he watched, they, they tore these loaves of bread open and buttered slice after slice and and wolfed them down. Looking around at the wrappers on the floor is evident that they had been eating all the bread that he had been sending. Their their slimy cheeks were covered with crumbs and the floor was covered with crumbs. And after one man finished the last slice of bread, he grunted with great effort to the owner of the bread company, thank you for the bread. We've enjoyed it immensely. 
The owner of the bread company said, yes, I can see that. But what about all those hungry people I saw on the street? The bread I sent was to be shared with them. The Bible says Jesus is the bread of life. And I wonder, church, God's people, are we sharing the bread of life with those who are dying in their sins? That, I believe, is the the heart of this passage in the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 11. Are we as a church sharing the bread of life with a world that so desperately needs it? If you were here for our last message, you'll remember in Acts chapter 10, Peter made a controversial trip to hang out with a Gentile named Cornelius and take the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. And Cornelius and his family believed and the Holy Spirit came on him. To you and I, it's a big deal. Most of us in here are Gentiles. So what? But to the Jews of that time, if they had a national inquirer, they would have sent their photographers. And they would have got a picture of Peter at a really bad angle holding a pork chop or something in Cornelius' house. And the headlines would have been the Apostle Peter in a home with Gentiles eating pork, claiming that they too can be saved. This would have been huge news to them. And so while it's important that Peter went and took the good news of Jesus to Cornelius, What's also very important is how's the church back in Jerusalem going to react to this? Because all the future hangs on this. How's how's the church going to do with this idea of Peter taking the gospel even to those Gentiles, as they put it later on? And we're going to look at 18 verses in Acts chapter 11 at what happens when Peter comes back. Verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now it's obvious this word was traveling, right? Because it beat Peter back to the city. We don't know how long Peter was gone, but the word of what happened there got back to Jerusalem before he did. They heard that these Gentiles had received the word of God. So he meets with the circumcised believers in what they basically level at him. We may not get it in the English because we're out of that culture, but they leveled a legal charge against him. The wording in this last sentence is a legal charge, as if he were in a court. You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. What's Peter going to do? And I I want to think about this group, this group of early Jewish Christians. On the one hand, we want to understand where they're coming from. We don't want to be overly harsh on them. For centuries, even the way God had things lined up, if a Gentile wanted to come to a relationship with God the Father, he would have to basically for all intents and purposes, become a Jew. He would have to be circumcised. He would have to begin to follow those dietary laws. And if he wanted to go into the temple 
where God's presence dwelt with his people, he would have to go through all the ceremonial cleansings. For centuries, this is how it was. So you can understand, on the one hand, why they, they feel this way. Change is hard. When God says we're going to change the way we're doing things, even when God says it, it can be difficult to process. That's how it was for these people. So we want to understand on the one hand, if you know that change is hard, let's not be too harsh. But the other hand, go with me on this. This is a church in Jerusalem that had already heard Jesus' words. He said the gospel will go into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to all the earth. They, they knew that. They knew that the gospel was not supposed to stay among Jews in, in Jerusalem. They should have also known that even as far back as Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, God had told Abraham, I have blessed you so that through you the entire world might be blessed. He had told the Jews repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, I didn't choose you because you're so wonderful, because you're so righteous, because you're so obedient to my every wish. <laughs> he told them repeatedly, I chose you of my own choosing and for my glory so that the rest of the world can look at you and see what a relationship with God should be like. I chose you from my grace. But they, like we do sometimes in the church, over time began to twist God's grace. And they began to believe that they really, as a group, deserved being chosen by God. That something about them made them better than those other people. That we earned this, that we deserve God's love, and those people don't. And that's where they had gone too far. So they leveled the charge against Peter. You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And I want you to look at Peter's explanation. For about 12 verses here, he's going to explain to them what happened. He says in verse 4, starting from the beginning... Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. Now you're going to notice throughout this story, Peter is going out of his way to show these people, guys, this is something that God started. I didn't start this. This wasn't my idea. I'm not losing it. This is something that God told me to do. So he starts out by saying, look, this is a vision I had. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from where? heaven. Who lives in heaven? Okay, guys, this is from God. Go with me here. It came down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Guys, the voice came from heaven a second time. This was, this was God talking to me. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Now, I think this is interesting, because if you remember last week when Peter showed up at Cornelius' house, you remember how he didn't mention anything about the three times and the surely not, Lord? He's like, Hey, I came without any objection. That's what he told Cornelius. He wants these guys to make sure they know that he did object. Peter's human, okay? I think we can smile with Peter. We, depending on what crowds we're talking to, we may alter 
what we say sometimes, if you're like Peter, if you're human. I think most of us are. So he tells them, I objected to this, guys. I, I didn't want to do it, but God kept saying it. So verse 11, right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. Again, he's showing them, guys, this is more than I could have done myself. After I had the vision three times, right at that moment, these three guys show up. And then God, the Holy Spirit, tells me to go with them. Okay, vision, spirit, timing. There's something supernatural going on here, guys. Oh, the bless you appropriate. The, the Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. You remember I told you when we were here last week that he took those six guys because he wanted some backup. He, he probably knew people in Jerusalem were going to be asking, what's going on here? And he didn't want to be the only one saying, well, the Holy Spirit came on the Gentiles, and they're all like, whatever, Peter. <laughs> You're the dude that told God to build some houses at the Mount of Transfiguration. You're the guy that fell asleep in the garden. Whatever, Peter. No, he, he, he brought some, some backup. They entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house. This is Cornelius and say, send a Joppa for Simon, who's called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. You can see his case mounting, right? Vision, timing, spirit, angel. Obviously, this is not just something old Peter cooked up. God's doing something here. So as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them. And this is the clincher. The Holy Spirit came on them. That's something Peter couldn't do on his own. As he had come on us at the beginning, he's looking way back to Pentecost when he came on the Jews, saying it was just the same. You know, they spoke in tongues, they praised God. Verse 16, then I remembered what the Lord had said. So you've got to even quote Jesus. You want, this case is getting rock solid. Even Jesus said, John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Amen. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? And that is the crux of his argument. He's like, guys, if God told me to do this, and obviously he did because he backed it up when the Holy Spirit came on the, these people, who was I to stand in God's way? What, what a great motto for life. You know, when God tells me to do something, who am I to stand in God's way? And I see a couple of things in this passage. We're going to see their reaction in just a moment. Uh, number one is, don't be surprised if when you step out and follow God to reach a, a people group or, or do something that God's tugging on you to do, don't be surprised if you get criticism even from other people within the church. Even from other people in the church. One of my favorite uh, missional mentors, coaches, uh, is a guy named Hugh Halter. He wrote the Tangible Kingdom Primer that a lot of you have used in our missional communities. One of the things that he does in his spare time, because he has a heart for this community, is he spends time in gay bars. Regularly. The, the last conference I went to down in Phoenix where he was at, that's where he had been the night before, hanging out in a gay bar. Now you think about the, the homosexual population. You know, we don't freak out about reaching Gentiles anymore because most of us are one. 
But who are the groups that the church loves to take and say, hey, God can save people like me, but not people like them? And I think much of the church would, not, not me, God, God by his grace has helped me understand over the years that, that we are all sinners. All right, Romans 3.23, we, we all fall short of the glory of God. Paul says in Romans 2 that Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. We're, we're all sinners, and if we're saved, we're saved by grace, not because we deserved it. But I think a lot of the church throws homosexuals into that category. A guy can save people like me, but, but not people like that. You, you think about who, who are the other categories of people that maybe we write off today. God can save me, but not... What, what, what are some of the groups that, that maybe... Abortion doctors. Maybe that's a group that much of the church would throw in a category and say, God could save me, but never, never somebody that's, that's done that. What about Islamic militants? And now you're starting to see how heavy and, and far-reaching grace is when we start to talk about Islamic militants. I could go on. Who are the people that we say, God could save people like us, that look like us, act like us, but not them? And and what Peter is showing this group in this account is, hey, look what God did. And I think sometimes what you and I need to do when we run into people in the church that think these ways is remind them of stories where God has reached people in those groups that we love to ostracize. Tell them how God worked. So I read a story of a guy that wrote a book called From Jihad to Jesus. He was an Islamic militant in Africa killed many Christians in some of those wars. He, he ended up coming to America. And he says that while he was in America, he began to explore the claims of Islam versus the claims of Christianity. And, and God, the Holy Spirit, convinced him of the truth of Jesus Christ and this loving Father that wanted to forgive sins. So different from Allah. And he said the combination of that truth and the love that the Christians he was around in America showed him led him place his trust in Jesus as his personal savior. He wrote that book, From Jihad to Jesus. He tells his story. It's very hard for someone to stand there and say, no, Jesus didn't save you, right? Who, who's going to do that? that? That's what God did. 